This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here with my co-host, Jimmy Johnson, and we have the great privilege to have Dr. Sam Waldron on our uh, podcast today to discuss a book that he has co-authored, Who Runs the Church? So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Waldron. Thank you, Austin. It's a delight to be with you guys today and uh, to talk about this important subject in the book you're, you're referencing. Yes, thank you. Um, and if we've previously had Dr. Waldron on where we've given more of a, a extensive introduction to him and his ministry, he is a pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church and the uh, president of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. But uh, let's dig into this topic that we're going to be discussing today. Um, our first question in the book, you co-author, you contribute a view that you have called plural elder congregationalism. So who are we describing whenever we mention elder and what other New Testament words describe this office elder? And why is this important for us to understand? Yeah, um, well, there are as many as five, some would say seven different designations of the same office in the New Testament. There are, are, however, three main designations of this office, and I I regard them as synonymous. Uh, And they are elder, uh, uh, sometimes translated presbyter uh, from the Greek presbyteros. Uh, They are... uh, Bishop, sometimes translated overseer, uh, from the Greek word episkopos, and they are uh, a pastor or shepherd. Now I'm my my Greek is drawing a blank here. I think it's from the Greek poimen, um, is the uh, is the Greek word for shepherd. I I'm getting shepherd and sheep and stuff mixed up in my mind right now. But at any rate, those are the three main words, and I think it's clear from the New Testament. This is what I argue in Who Runs the Church that these, these three uh, words are simply different designations for the very same identical office. Uh, this is, I think, clear from Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5. It's a long discussion to say that. And there are other synonymous words as well, but those are the main three that are used in the New Testament. Um. The next question has to do with distinguishing. There are some that distinguish those terms into actual separate offices. So what are the dangers and or problems of distinguishing between bishops and elders? And why did this distinction develop in the early church? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. Some of it is, is maybe a little bit speculative. What's not speculative is that a distinction between bishops and elders did develop very early in the Christian church. And um, uh, 
and, and I suppose in the first place, it was kind of a natural thing. In any uh, in any plural leadership, it's natural, I think, for for one man to uh, who's either has seniority or whose influence is greater than the others, whose gifts and usefulness are greater than the others, to kind of emerge as the first among equals. But it's e- it's very easy to move from first among equals to first, <laughs> and uh, I think that's what happened in the early church. Uh, you see it as early as Ignatius. Uh, who assumed uh, uh, a kind of uh, uh, assumed a distinction between bishop and elder in his seven epistles? I think he was kind of uh, uh, projecting his own understanding of ecclesiology onto a number of other churches, and I think it's pretty clear that uh, that uh, both the New Testament and indications in early church literature is that. Prior to the development of the bishop-elder st- uh, distinction, all bishops were elders and all elders were bishops, and that was what was understood. And this gets you into a tremendous argument uh, that raged between the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians uh, back during the Reformation, the Presbyterians arguing that there was no distinction between uh, uh, bishops and elders. Uh, whereas the Episcopalians regarded it as essential to their system, of course, that you make such a distinction. Um, why is this so important? And what was the first misstep? Well, let, let me answer those questions in, in the reverse order. The first misstep, I think, was taking a practical distinction between uh, the man who was first among equals uh, and, and, and when you, it was, I suppose, natural, it was supposed, supposed it seemed, uh, pragmatic to give that first among equals a special name. And he was given a special name. It was the name Bishop. The only problem was this was, um, some might think it a little, but a clear departure from the ecclesiology of the New Testament, which equates bishops and elders in Acts 20, 1 Peter 5 and in other ways. Now, why is this so important? Because that first misstep was what led to Roman Catholicism. Without that first step, Roman Catholicism and the papacy could never have developed. But once you begin to make these distinctions that are not grounded in the Word of God, they're actually contradicted by the Word of God, the the first uh, among equals becomes the first and then it becomes, uh, then you have the development of what's called the monarchical bishop or monarchical episcopate, where there's one man rule over the church. And then uh, when you have this one man rule over a larger church that influences the churches around it, gradually you have the development of the great archiepiscopal sees in the early church and uh, Alexandria and, and Jerusalem and Antioch and Constant, Constantinople and so forth, and in Rome. And once you have this principle of hierarchy established, it's natural once you have all these great uh, uh, diocesans or great sees in the early church, it's natural for that, for, for someone to raise the question, well, who is the first among equals? Who is the first among these archbishops? And, of course, 
Rome, with its claim to the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, had a great argument. And, and frankly, it was this development that started very small with the distinction between bishop and elder that led ultimately to the primacy of the bishop of Rome. So I think that's why it's important. Uh, there are other reasons uh, that perhaps we could give with regard to the practical practical reality here. Um, and uh, one of them is this. Um, you begin to lose the mutual oversight that every leader needs when you distinguish too strongly between uh, the uh, first among equals and the and the rest of the eldership because it's natural for them to defer to him. It's not natural for them to oversee him. He's the bishop, not them, after all. And so you have this situation developing where the primary uh, leader of the church has no one to oversee and to, uh, and, and or who feels like they're in a position to, uh, in any way, uh, Christ, in a Christian way, challenge or question his leadership or the direction he's giving. And and that leads to um, a, a number of problems in the local church. This next question transitions us a little bit away from um, the type of church government structure that distinguishes between bishops and elders, but it is uh, another view that's presented in this book, and that is single elder-led congregationalism. Um, why should a church have a plurality of elders as to a singular elder? And what are the disadvantages of a church or maybe even practical implications of a church only having one elder? Sure. Um, first answer to the first question is, uh, because that's what the Bible says. <laughs> uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, I'm going to make an assertion here, that anyone who's listening can can go check themselves. There is no instance of a single elder church in the New Testament. Every every reference to elders in the New Testament is to a plurality of elders. Every church about which the eldership is mentioned has a plurality of elders. That's true without exception of anything we know in the New Testament. And so uh, whether we can figure out uh, whether or not that seems to fit with our human wisdom or not, that's what the New Testament teaches. And uh, I think we ought to be humble enough to think, therefore, that there's a good reason why uh, Christ and the apostles, in appointing the leadership of the church, always appointed a plurality of elders, uh, without exception. Now, <clears throat> what are the dangers? Well, I, I think I think you can see them far and wide in uh, Baptist circles where uh, a single pastor, it is very common, has been common. Um, and they are really uh, going two directions. The one uh, one direction is tyranny. Uh, this is pastor popism. Whatever the pastor says, uh, if he's gained that place of leadership in the church, that's what goes. goes. No one questions him. And, and no one... Uh, uh, has the ability to, uh, uh, I don't want to use the word challenge because that sounds uh, the wrong way, but at least to question and to uh, ask him to rethink uh, things that he's doing. So 
One of the dangers is tyranny, that the tyranny of a single uh, uh, pastor uh, with uh, no other authority in the church. The other, the other danger, however, uh, and it develops for the same reason, is anarchy. Where you have only a single pastor, uh, it can be very difficult uh, to lead a church, uh, if especially if there are strong-minded people in it, and there always are. It can be very difficult to lead a church that is uh, uh, going through any kind of difficult situation. Um, take the church discipline, for, for instance. Uh, I, one man um, trying to lead a church in this church discipline, what happens? Well, it's just his opinion. But if you have a plurality of elders, qualified elders, biblical elders, uh, elders informed by the word of God, then the very difficult uh, leadership situation of uh, of a discipline situation and other kind of situations, you can have uh, a uh, a uh, clear, solid leadership without without uh, pastor popism. But you have a leadership that is strong enough to resist uh, what we might call the anarchical tendencies. Of, uh, of the democratic congregationalism that is out there all over the place in Baptist circles, for instance. Um, what do we mean when we say congregationalism, and what distinguishes this from Presbyterianism or the Episcopal church government structure? Well, it's interesting, Jimmy, because when I first was assigned this, I didn't I didn't choose the language of plural elder congregationalism. That was assigned to me. And um, but over the years, that language has grown on me, and I, I see it as more and more helpful in terms of making some of the distinctions you're pointing to in your question. Um, what are um, how does it distinguish, how does congregationalism distinguish itself? And, and here are the distinctions between congregationalism and Presbyterianism. And, of course, uh, at, at some level, Episcopalianism. Congregationalism is committed to two things as biblical, and I believe they are biblical, um, uh, that uh, are at least de-emphasized and sometimes not practiced at all in Presbyterianism. And and sometimes not practiced at all by other churches that hold uh, what they call elder rule, um, and um, and the, and those two things are that the consent of the church or common suffrage, the language of our confession in chapter twenty six, common suffrage is the is necessary uh, to the exertion of church power, both with regard to church discipline and with regard to uh, the election of officers. And I regard common suffrage with regard, in both of those things as essential. Now, it's clear, uh, both in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, just to say the two main passages, that uh, common suffrage is necessary in church discipline. Uh, I hope I never hear again, but I probably will, uh, people telling me that, the elder called them into his office and he disciplined them. I'm sorry, the Bible doesn't give elders the ability to do that. Uh, or else somebody's really misunderstanding biblical church discipline. 
Uh, the elders have the authority to lead the church in church discipline. But according to both Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, there is no church discipline if there is not a vote of the church. And um, I hope I never hear that again, but I think I will because I've heard it a hundred times in the 40 years of ministry I've been in. It's simply wrong. It's not It's not Reformed Baptist church polity. And uh, somebody might think, well, I'm being really spiritual and really Reformed because I'm practicing church discipline. Not if you didn't recommend it to the church and they didn't vote on it, you're not. So that's that's one of the things that I think needs to be said uh, about that. And of course, from both from the language of Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, and also from, I think, Acts chapter 6, 1 to 7, where the church as a whole was involved in the selection of deacons. But I think there's a principle here that uh, works for elders as well, the congregational principle. The election of officers must also be by the church. And uh, thankfully, Presbyterians have usually uh, allowed the church to uh, vote on its own officers, although Presbyterianism does not uh, require a vote of the church for church discipline. The consistory or eldership of the church uh, is the body that disciplines in most Presbyterian churches. At the same time, however, we now have... uh, churches out there, I'll, I'll not go any further to name them and the, the groups that practice this, but that kind of have self-perpetuating elderships where elders are appointed by elders. Now, they may run it by the church, but there's no vote of the church, and uh, I think this is fraught with dangers as well, and I think it's a departure uh, from plural elder congregationalism. Um, let me put it this way. You haven't used this language, but I, I have come to think that it's helpful to uh, make a distinction between elder rule and elder leadership. Elder rule, I associate uh, with a method of rule that really denies common suffrage on the part of the church. Elder leadership, I regard, as consistent with the common suffrage of the church. Elders must lead. Uh, They must lead in every action of the church, but there must be the consent of the church. We must have regard, as uh, as Cotton says, uh, in the keys of the kingdom, both to the liberty of the church and to the authority of the elders for the perfection of any church power, church action, or for the exertion of any church power. Well, you've given discipline as an example as to uh, the congregation's role, um, but what role does the congregation play in decision-making uh, in other examples that you can think of in uh, plural elder-led congregationalism? Or if you have another term that uh, you prefer, since you said that one was uh, given to you. No, I, I like that term now, and I think, I think it embodies some helpful distinctions. And so over the years, I've come to embrace it. Um, I think that following on from the principles of, I've just said, of the necessity of common suffrage with regard to the uh, church and its election of officers and its discipline, I think it makes sense to say that in other major issues, the consent of the church should be sought. Uh, Not for the color of the carpeting, not for a lot of things, which I think the elders of the church, and especially as the church gets larger, ought to have the authority uh, just to simply move on. But I think major issues, 
anything that changes the constitution or confession of the church, uh, anything that, and, and major financial decisions, the sale of church property, the purchase of church property, these kind of things, it seems to me by uh, parity of reasoning should also be matters that are brought for the consent of the church. Not every church will do exactly the same thing in these things, these matters. As churches get larger, I think there's it's natural and 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 right for the uh, uh, for the eldership of the church to handle more of the details. It simply becomes impossible to take everything to the whole church in the way that you might do in a smaller congregation, say like ours. But I do think that uh, and and some of the other things. I mean. Uh, that you can add on here that should be a matter of the common suffrage of the church uh, is, for instance, the uh, admission of new members. If the church's uh, suffrage is necessary for the ejection of members, then it, by parity of reasoning, it seems to be necessary for the reception of members. Now, again, I'm not going to be uh, uh, rigorous about this, um, I think that in the reception of members, it may be possible to use uh, different methodologies that still respect the consent of the church. But in our own case, the elders in interviewed the prospective members, recommended them to the church for membership, and the church actually votes on each new member. Just to transition a little bit, in the book, there's the chapter by the Presbyterian, and he appeals to First Timothy 5.17 to make a distinction between what Presbyterians call ruling and teaching elders. You respond with a different distinction. Can you explain that for our, our listeners? Sure. Maybe it'd be good to read First Timothy 5.17. Let me bring it up here. Um and uh, so our listeners will have a clear idea of what the debate is here. First uh, Timothy 5.17 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at, hard at preaching and teaching. Uh, and this is the classic passage the Presbyterians turn to to justify their distinction between ruling and teaching elders. And it seems like it's there, the elders who rule well, and then there are those who especially work hard at preaching and teaching. But I think of that um, their ruling teaching elder distinction um, really needs to be carefully examined, uh, both in light of what this passage really teaches and in light of uh, the rest of the Word of God. Uh, the first thing we have to say is that, and they would probably admit this, but I think it really is fatal to this distinction, and especially in the way it's often practiced. Um, the First Timothy 3 and the qualifications for elders makes clear that every elder must be apt to teach. And so the notion that you can have elders who rule but don't teach and I, many Presbyterians probably don't meet, need that, but that's where the distinction seems to lead, uh, is, is simply uh, contrary to both First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and what it tells us about the necessity of every elder being able to teach. So 
Uh, that raises some questions about the ruling teaching elder uh, distinction to begin with. And I think if you go back to 1 Timothy 5.17, what you see here is something a little different. Paul, Paul's uh, talking here, of course, about the support of elders. Uh, that's what he means when he refers to double honor. Honor is a reference to remuneration. He said earlier in the passage that every widow deserves, needs to be, that doesn't have a family to support them, needs to be honored, that is to say, supported by the church. But here he, he refers to the fact that uh, certain elders are to be considered worthy of double honor, which I think means generous financial remuneration. They are to be able to live of the gospel. They should have financial life out of the gospel if they're preaching it. Their, their remuneration should not be a slow death. It should be, it should be life. Uh, that's what Paul means by double honor here. Um, and so he's talking about the remuneration of, uh, and the generous remuneration of elders uh, in this passage. Now, I think we need to be really careful of how we understand the passage. Some people, when they read the phrase, the elders who rule well, uh, when they see that phrase, they immediately think that there must be other elders who don't rule well. That is to say, rule badly. Well, the problem with that is that it would imply that uh, that uh, you have elders there in Ephesus that are ruling badly, who are unworthy of their office. And I don't think that's what Paul is talking about at all. The elders who rule well are simply those who, because of grace and gift and maturity, excel other qualified elders in the influence and blessing and benefit of their rule. And so I think what we have here is a first distinction. There are the elders in general, and then there are the elders whose grace, gift, and maturity uh, make them particularly influential. And this is what Paul means by ruling well. He's not talking about ruling well as opposed to ruling badly. He's talking about ruling well as opposed to simply ruling. So there's the first distinction. But then he moves on to a second distinction in the passage. Or he says, after talking about the elders who rule well being considered worthy of double honor, to uh, identify a second distinguish, distinction in the, in the middle of the eldership, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. I believe the word especially is properly translated here uh, by the uh, New American Standard uh, Bible. And uh, it does not mean specifically, it means especially, which again, now, now gives us a second distinction. So I think the best way to think about this passage is to think of it in terms of three concentric circles. There are the elders who rule, outer circle. Uh, among them, there are the elders who rule well, uh, next inner circle. And among the elders who rule well, there are those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so what this passage teaches us is that the focus of the uh, generous remuneration of the church for their elders is to be on that inner circle, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. But if there are other elders who rule well, they may not be uh, given to public preaching and teaching. Maybe they're counselors. Maybe they're administrators uh, in a larger church. Uh, those, those elders might uh, be supported, generously remunerated as well. Um, so what we have here, in my view, is a distinction between uh, 
uh, three different types or distinctions among elders, uh, a threefold concentric circle, and and not um, the kind of uh, arbitrary, I think, ruling teaching elder distinction that Presbyterians impose on the passage. Dr. Waldron, you teach uh, Doctrine of the Church at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You are one of the elders of Grace Reformed Baptist Church. So why why is it so important to develop a robust ecclesiology? Um, why must the pastor care about this topic, these topics that we've been discussing? And why should the church member that isn't a pastor care about these uh, topics that we've been discussing? Well, it strikes me that the first reason is that it enriches the congregation. Several years ago, I, I preached... Uh, a couple of message messages on this general subject, and uh, I, I was saying it a little teasingly, but I told our church that they have three senior pastors, <laughs> and I did that because I wanted to I wanted to break them out of the mold of thinking one of these guys is really my pastor, the two other guys are just there for looks, you know, <laughs> um, and so I, I you know. I am not the fully supported pastor of the church. Uh, most of my remuneration and my compensation comes from the seminary, quite honestly. Uh, ben Carlson is the is the fully supported pastor of the church. He's the senior pastor. Uh, pastor Joe Wilson has been the pastor longest here and is respected by our congregation. So he's the senior pastor. I'm the chairman of the elders, so I'm the senior pastor. <laughs> so we have three different senior pastors. But I think the point is this. Uh, it's important for people to understand that it's not one man making all the decisions behind the scenes. It's it's a team of elders that are leading the church. And I think there is a security in that for the church. And it also enriches the church because they realize they don't have just one pastor. They have three pastors caring for them. Amen. We have been talking about who rules or who runs the church um, with Dr. Waldron, and he has explained to us the plural elder-led congregationalism. That is the position he takes. We would also agree with that. So, Dr. Waldron, thank you for coming on the show and discussing this important topic with us. Thank you, Brother Jimmy. Thank you, Brother Austin. It's been great talking with you. So much more can be said about this, but uh, I hope this makes your hearers think. And for our listeners, we just want to wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.